Hello, this is Peter Shea, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the April 4th, 2023 issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The first article is called, Trump Arrives in New York for an Arraignment that Will Make History. <clears throat> Mayor Adams told protesters that the city is always ready as Donald J. Trump returned to Trump Tower on the eve of becoming the first ex-president to be indicted. Donald J. Trump traveled to New York from Florida on Monday to face arraignment in the first indictment of a former American president. His trip monitored minutely from the moment he left his Palm Beach estate until he arrived at Trump Tower in Midtown. Live trackers followed his red, white, and blue plane all the way to its arrival at LaGuardia Airport. Helicopters broadcast the motorcade that swept him to his Manhattan home, which, w which was hemmed in by press, the police, and protesters. On Tuesday, the din will give way to a solemn drama with historic stakes. The former president will be whisked downtown by police officers and Secret Service agents to surrender at the office of the Manhattan District, District Attorney, Alvin L. Bragg. He will then be arraigned to the Manhattan Criminal Courts Building, where his supporters plan a rally outside. Mayor Eric Adams warned Mr. Trump's supporters to keep the peace, saying that the dignity of the proceedings would not be disrupted. Barricades were deployed, and the police department sent a stand-ready order to its roughly 35,000 officers, a force larger and better trained than some national armies. While there may be some rabble-rousers thinking of coming to our city tomorrow, our message is clear and simple. Control yourselves, Mr. Adams said at a news conference on Monday. New York is our home and not a place for your misplaced anger. <clears throat> the indictment that set off the furor, the, the furor is linked to a payment made during the 2016 election to buy the silence of a porn star, Stormy Daniels. Miss Daniels has said she had a brief sexual relationship with Mr. Trump in 2006. Mr. Trump denies the affair. Mr. Bragg's case against Mr. Trump has already roiled the national political landscape, and Mr. Trump has attacked the proceedings as a partisan move aimed at crippling his bid for the Republican nomination for president in 2024. The indictment is the result of one of several investigations into Mr. Trump's conduct. In Georgia, the Fulton County District Attorney is examining whether he attempted to pressure state officials into swaying the state into, into his column in the 2020 election. A federal special counsel is looking into the case of classified documents found in his possession and his involvement in the January 6, 2021 riot at the U.S. Capitol that was intended to block the certification of the vote. But Mr. Bragg was the first prosecutor to move turning himself into an immediate lightning rod for bitter criticism of Mr. Trump's Republican allies and rivals alike. And the charges, which will be unsealed Tuesday, forced Mr. Trump's dramatic return to a city where he grew up and rose to the fame that catapulted him to the presidency. His appearance has put the city on edge, stoking concern over the possibility of unrest as Mr. Trump is fingerprinted and processed. In warning protesters, Mr. Adams singled out Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, a conservative Republican from Georgia and staunch Trump backer who has criticized the decision to indict Mr. Trump. She has advertised a, demonstra a demonstration planned for Tuesday with, with Jack Posobiec, an internet conspiracy theorist, and Graham Allen, a right-wing commenter, <clears throat> commentator. Although we have no specific threats, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is known to spread misinformation and hate speech, she stated she's coming to town. When you're in town, be on your best behavior, Mr. Adams said. Shortly after his comments, Representative Greene re rip-posted on Twitter, now Mayor Adams is threatening me. Unbelievable. <clears throat> President Biden said on a Monday visit to Minnesota that he was confident that New York authorities could handle any trouble. I have faith in the New York Police Department, he said. While Mr. Trump encouraged protests last month to take our nation back in announcing that he expected to be arrested, he has not made any specific call to action for Tuesday comparable to his December 19, 2020 post on Twitter that explicitly summoned supporters to a rally in Washington on January 6th. It is not clear whether Mr. Trump plans to make a statement in New York after he is indicted. 
Even if he does, signs are scant that the overt coordination of mass protests that characterized the weeks and months before January 6th has taken place. On Monday, Mr. Trump left his estate, Mar-a-Lago, and landed in New York at 3.28 p.m. He was taken in a motorcade to Trump Tower, where at least four helicopters hovered. Dozens of police officers and, and detectives stood near the entrance. The photographers scrambled up ladders to gain vantage points for their shots. Mr. Trump waved briefly to supporters behind police barricades. Ariel Cohane, 51, of Manhattan, gathered with others behind pro-Trump banners. <clears throat> he said he showed up to voice my outrage over what even some Democrats are saying is political persecution. This has nothing to do with law and order, he said. It's about stopping him from running and winning in 2024. Dion Cini, 54, Cini, 54, appeared on the corner of East 56th Street and 5th Avenue wearing a red Make America Great Again baseball hat and ultra-extreme MAGA t-shirt. <clears throat> give me liberty or give me death, he yelled. A protester in a black clown costume squeezed a horn to harass Trump supporters. When one responded with a, his own air horn, an ensuing shoving match had to be broken up by the police. For some people simply trying to go about their day, the disruption fanned anti-Trump embers into flames. Good Lord, it makes you hate this guy even more, said Nick Jones, 48, of Minneapolis, as he attempted to navigate the tight spaces on the sidewalk. Even if Mr. Trump's arraignment were to touch off disturbances in New York, the authorities seem to have learned valuable lessons from the Capitol riot and from the challenges posed by the nationwide protests against police violence in 2020. The New York City Police Department, state law enforcement agencies, the Secret Service, and the U.S. Marshals Service have coordinated efforts and an increased intelligence collection. Robert Riley, a former FBI agent in New Jersey who handled domestic terrorism cases, said New York City itself was a deterrent, and it poses an elemental problem that does not exist in other locations where violent protests have occurred, such as Washington and Charlottesville, Virginia. It is too far. It, it is too far and too many tolls, he said, and nowhere to park. Mr. Adams reassured New Yorkers that the police department was equipped to handle Mr. Trump's visit, whatever may unfold. He urged residents to go about their normal routines. New York City is always ready, he said. A correction was made on April 3rd, 2023. Because of an editing error, an earlier version of this article misstated who was investigating whether Donald J. Trump attempted to interfere with 2020 election results in Georgia. It is the Fulton County District Attorney, not the State Attorney General. <clears throat> This next article is called, Millions on Medicaid May Soon Lose Coverage as Pandemic Protections Expire. A requirement that states keep people on Medicaid during the coronavirus pandemic has come to an end, and 15 million people could lose their coverage as a result. Kansas City, Missouri. In a closet-sized windowless office, Kiala, Kiala, Kiala Marshall maintains an Excel spreadsheet with a prosaic title, Medicaid Unwinding, the source material for a mind-numbing routine. Five days a week, she and a group of co-workers in a poor section of Kansas City, Missouri's largest city, of Kansas City, Missouri's largest city, call 75 to 100 Medicaid recipients from a list of about 19,000 who receive care at Swope Health, a federally funded network of health clinics. Their assignment is straightforward warning those patients that could lose their health insurance for the first time in at least three years. Medicaid is on the line, Ms. Marshall, once a recipient herself, said in that cramped office last week, describing how she delivers the potentially dire news. As of Saturday, state officials around the country could begin removing people from Medicaid who no longer qualify, something they had been prohibited from doing under a provision in the coronavirus relief package passed by Congress in 2020. That package offered states additional federal funding in exchange for guaranteeing that recipients of Medicaid, a joint federal-state program that, that serves low-income people, would retain their health coverage during the pandemic. In part because of that policy, the nation's uninsured rate reached a record low early last year. Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program have ballooned to cover roughly 90 million people, or more than one in four Americans, 
up from about 70 million people at the start of the pandemic. The guaranteed coverage amounted to an extraordinary reprieve for patients, for patients preserving in- insurance for millions of vulnerable Americans and sparing them the hassles of regular eligibility checks. The federal government has estimated that about 15 million people will lose coverage in the coming months, including nearly 7 million people who are expected to be dropped from the rolls even though they are still eligible. Nearly half of those who lose coverage will be black or Hispanic, according to federal projections. The changes in eligibility could lead to more people signing up for private coverage through the Affordable Care Act's marketplaces, where some people who lose Medicaid coverage will be eligible for free plans. But hundreds of thousands of people could end up in the so-called coverage gap in states that have not expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, with incomes too low for subsidized coverage through those marketplaces, but too high to qualify for Medicaid. The speed and mechanics of what Ms. Marshall and state and federal health officials are calling the unwinding will vary by state. A majority of them plan to take 12 to 14 months to complete the eligibility verifications, with many states beginning to remove people from Medicaid rolls by late spring or early summer. Only five states, Arizona, Arkansas, Idaho, New Hampshire, and South Dakota, were expected to begin axing people for Medicaid this month, according to the federal government. Some state officials have argued that the program is merely retreating to its intended size and shape. We'll be able to go back in there and say, okay, do you belong? Do you not belong? Governor Michael L. Parson of Missouri, a Republican, said in February. Annual eligibility checks can save states money by relieving their Medicaid programs of spending on participants who no longer qualify for coverage, but they often result in a cycle that health policy experts call churn, or when people eligible for Medicaid lose their insurance in the confusing, intimidating bureaucracy of enrollment verification, then eventually re-enroll. Those people don't have anywhere else to go, said Jennifer Tolbert, an associate director of the program on Medicaid and the uninsured at the Kaiser Family Foundation. She added that the consequences would be severe for people with chronic health conditions, for whom a week or a month without insurance could be especially risky. Researchers have found that most people who lose Medicaid coverage often go without insurance for some period of time, while about 4 in 10 regain Medicaid coverage within a year. In Missouri, where state officials have warned that as many as 200,000 people may lose coverage, the unwinding could result in a boom-and-bust cycle. The state expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act during the pandemic, resulting in more than 300,000 new adults with coverage. It now has about 1.5 million Medicaid recipients, half of whom are children. That growth makes the state a proverbial canary in, in the coal mine for the rest of the country during the unwinding, said Timothy D. McBride, a health policy expert at Washington University in St. Louis, and the former chair of an oversight committee for the state's Medicaid program. He pointed to a controversial period in 2018 and 2019 when officials used a new process for verifying Medicaid eligibility to remove over 100,000 people from the rolls, many of them children. That led to complaints of unjust removals. Have we learned lessons from that period? Dr. McBride asked. Medicaid eligibility rules vary by state. They can depend on a family's income, whether someone is raising a child, and whether a person has a disability. Millions of children and pregnant women benefit from the program. For states, tracking down those who are on Medicaid will be daunting, experts say. Some people will have moved, and some will have died. Phone numbers will have changed, making some people hard to reach. Others will be earning more, making them ineligible for coverage. Researchers at the Kaiser Family Foundation and the Georgetown University Center for Children with Families found different strategies among states, some of them with spottier technology that could hinder efficient re-enrollment. Most states, the researchers found, were using databases from other government programs, such as food stamps or Social Security, to verify eligibility for Medicaid automatically and save people the hassle of filling out paper forms. Paper forms. Missouri has adopted that strategy. The so-called continuous enrollment policy requiring that Medicaid recipients retain their coverage was initially set to end with the expiration of the public health emergency for the pandemic which the Biden administration is planning to allow to lapse in May. But before the administration announced its plans to end the emergency, 
a spending package that Congress passed in December, separated the Medicaid policy from the emergency declaration and established an April 1st starting point for the unwinding. When lawmakers set that date, they attached guardrails to encourage states to undertake the work gradually. The legislation mandates that states report data monthly to the Department of Health and Human Services on how many people have been taken off Medicaid. It also allows the department to intervene if a state does not comply with federal requirements. Missouri is starting with people whose coverage would be up for renewal in June, a group of about 100,000. The state is leaning on managed care organizations to work with Medicaid recipients on renewals, but the effort required of the state is still immense. Kim Evans, the official overseeing the Medicaid unwinding in Missouri's Department of Social Services, said she had about 1,200 government workers available to help. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Those whose status the the state is still uncertain about after automatic checks will be mailed letters early, early next month and they will have until the end of June to complete renewal forms. If they miss that deadline, they will lose their insurance, but they can still challenge the decision and be re-enrolled if state officials determine them to be eligible. Ms. Evans called the work an all-out assault to reach people who might otherwise slip through the cracks. Sidney D. Watson, a health law professor at St. Louis University, said the unwinding could be particularly damaging to the many seasonal agricultural workers in rural stretches of the state like in the Ozarks. Everyone is on high alert here, she said, adding that Medicaid coverage among those seasonal workers was important to keeping smaller hospitals and clinics running. Clinics like Swope Health are especially critical to, to warning Medicaid recipients about the unwinding policy, since their doctors and other health providers often know people affected by the policy change. Swope has run radio ads and placed billboards in and around Kansas City. Which have, incre- which have increased calls for Medicaid recipients inquiring about how to preserve their insurance, said Tamika Relaford, one of Ms. Marshall's coworkers who helps patients with their coverage. Tamika Relaford, excuse me. Almost half of Swope's roughly 40,000 patients are covered by Medicaid or the Children's Health Insurance Program, meaning the clinics rely on Medicaid funds. We still have to employ the providers, the nurses, and the administrators here to do the hard work, said Jaron Ravin, Swope's chief executive. For some, for some Swope patients unaware of their unwinding, it takes a lucky encounter. Unable to get Medicaid to cover his eyedrop prescription for glaucoma in recent weeks, Derek Smith learned something more important when he asked Swope for help. He could eventually lose his coverage altogether. Checking Mr. Smith's Medicaid status, Miss Relaford noticed he had moved, making him vulnerable to missing a mailing about the unwinding if one was sent to his previous address. Mr. Smith had not heard about the eligibility check. I was real close on it, he said, sheepishly while visiting a Swope clinic last week, adding that losing his insurance would have been an easy, easy mistake for him to make. Mr. Smith was one of the hundreds of thousands of adults who secured Medicaid coverage when Missouri expanded the program under the Affordable Care Act during the pandemic. But like others who gained coverage that way, he will be getting his first glimpse of annual scrutiny of his eligibility. Ms. Marshall, the SWOPE employee working through the Medicaid spreadsheet, said she worried about sending patients into a state of frantic panic when she reaches them to warn them about the possibility of losing coverage. This is something that a person needs, she said, for their family, for their children. This next article is called, NASA Names Diverse Astronaut Crew for Artemis II Moon Mission. Houston. For the first time in more than half a century, NASA has named a crew of astronauts headed to the moon. Humans have not ventured more than a few hundred miles off the planet since the return of Apollo 17, NASA's last moon mission, in 1972. After Artemis's experience on the moon, NASA hopes to chart a path to putting humans on Mars, while scientists expect to use what is found there to answer questions about how the solar system formed. Astronauts in 2023 are much different from those when the United States was in a race to beat the Soviet Union to the moon. 
During the Apollo program, 24 astronauts flew to the moon, and 12 of them stepped on the surface. All of them were Americans. All of them were white men, many of whom were test pilots. This time, the astronaut corps, the astronaut corps reflects a much wider swath of society. They are Reed Wiseman, the mission's commander, Victor Glover, the pilot, Christina Koch, mission specialist, and Jeremy Hansen, also a mission specialist. The first three are NASA astronauts, while Mr. Hansen is a member of the Canadian Space Agency. When we were selecting astronauts back then, Mr. Glover said in an interview, we intended to select the same person, just multiple copies. Ms. Koch will be the first, ever, first woman to venture beyond low Earth orbit, and Mr. Hansen, as a Canadian, the first non-American to travel that far. So am I excited? Ms. Koch said at, during an event during an event event unveiling the unveiling so am i excited <coughs> so am i excited miss coke said during an event unveiling oh my god so am i excited miss coke said during an event unveiling unveiling the crew at ellington field a small airport used by nasa for the training of astronauts absolutely but my real question is are you excited the mission is a major step in NASA's Artemis program to send astronauts back to the surface of the moon to explore the cold regions near the moon's south pole. Water ice found in deep dark craters there could supply water and oxygen for future astronauts, as well as fuel for missions deeper into space. Together, we are going to the moon, to Mars, and beyond, said Bill Nelson, the NASA administrator. But the four astronauts aboard this next mission, Artemis II, will not land on the moon. Instead, the travelers will take a 10-day journey that will swing around the moon and come back to Earth. It is currently scheduled for late next year. It's an exciting time for the Artemis people, no question about it, Harrison Schmidt, the last surviving astronaut from Apollo 17, said in an, in an interview. He added that many people did not fully realize that we're, that we're about three generations away from any experience with human beings being deep in space, and that's probably the most important part of the mission. Dr. Schmidt, who is also a former United States Senator from New Mexico, said he was not necessarily surprised that it had taken so long. I would say I'm disappointed, he said. A lot of things conspired to stop the Apollo program and to keep us from going back for quite a while. Mr. Hansen noted that the United States could have undertaken the Artemis missions by itself, but instead chose to pull together an international collaboration with Canada and the European Space Agency. That agreement reserved a seat for a Canadian astronaut on Artemis II. All of Canada is grateful that global for that global mindset and that leadership, Mr. Hansen said. Mr. Glover, who was the first black man to serve as a crew member on the International Space Station, said that diversity was an important aim of the agency and our partners. But it was also going to happen organically because the core, because of the because of the core that that we have. Because of the cores, because of the core that we have that represents America so well, he said. As the name of the mission indicates, Artemis II will be the second in NASA's Artemis program. Artemis I launched last November as an uncrewed test of the space launch system, NASA's giant new rocket, and the Orion astronaut capsule. The Orion spacecraft spent two weeks in orbit around the moon before returning to Earth, splashing down in the Pacific. After years of delay, development of the rocket took longer than originally promised. The Artemis I mission progressed smoothly for the most part, although some problems occurred. The heat shield of Orion protected the spacecraft during re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere, but more of it came off than had been expected. Artemis II, with four astronauts aboard, will allow a full check of the Orion's life support systems. Then NASA officials will feel more confident in undertaking the longer, more complex Artemis III mission, which will include two astronauts landing near the South Pole. Mr. Wiseman, Mr. Glover, and Ms. Koch all said they were not disappointed that being part of the Artemis II crew rules out the possibility of walking on the moon during Artemis III. This is going to probably sound cliche, Mr. Wiseman said, but just flying on any of these missions is an enormous thing. It's fantastic. I love the idea of going out past the moon. He added, watching our astronaut colleagues walk on the moon will be a success for us. 
After a long inter- afternoon of interviews with reporters, the, the four astronauts left the Johnson Space Center, accompanied by a police escort, to NRG Stadium in downtown Houston to watch the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship game between the University of Connecticut and San Diego State University. NASA is currently aiming for that first moon landing to occur in late 2025, but the NASA Inspector General has predicted the mission would slip to 2026 or later. The Artemis III mission requires the use of Starship, the giant spacecraft being developed by SpaceX, Elon Musk's rocket company, to take the two astronauts from a distant lunar orbit to the surface. The first test launch of Starship to space might take off in the coming weeks. In the 1960s, the space race reflected the geopolitical jousting between the United States and the Soviet Union. Once the race was, run, was won, interest in the moon by the public, politicians, even, and even NASA waned. There are some geopolitical echoes this time, too. China is also aiming to send astronauts to the moon in the coming years, but it is not just governments aiming for the moon now. Yusaku Yusaku Maizawa, a Japanese billionaire, has bought a trip on Starship that would loop around the moon similar to the trajectory that Artemis II will take. Dennis Tito, an entrepreneur who was the first space tourist to visit the International Space Station in 2001, and his wife, Akiko, have booked seats on a separate Starship trip around the moon. Five decades ago, that would have been like a billionaire buying a Saturn V, the rocket that propelled the Apollo astronauts to the moon. Today, it seems almost inevitable that the footprints of tourists will crisscross the lunar surface in the years to come. In an interview, Chris Hadfield, a Canadian astronaut who retired in 2013 after three trips to space, compared space travel to the early days of aviation. The wobbly craft that the Wright brothers built in 1903 flew, but barely. But but progress was fast. The first flight for KLM, the Dutch airline, was in 1920. 17 years from the, fr- from the Wright brothers to a profitable airline, that's, that's still around, Mr. Hadfield said. He added that innovation had greatly reduced the cost of leaving Earth. You can see that the cost is going to keep coming down as the vehicles get better proven, and that's going to increase the access and opportunity, Mr. Hadfield said. For the Artemis II astronauts, Dr. Schmidt offered some simple advice. Just enjoy it, he said. This next article is called Death and Justice on the Border. A migrant is killed. A rancher is charged. An unarmed Mexican man was shot as he crossed an Arizona ranch. The case against the ranch owner has prompted a backlash among supporters who say he is the real victim. Kino Springs, Arizona. Gabriel Cunbutimea Gabriel Quimbutamea was slipping across a rancher's land near the border with Mexico when the shooting started. I'm hit, he said, before his eyes rolled back and he crumpled face down by a mesquite tree. To the sheriff in rural Santa Cruz County, Arizona, this account, relayed by a witness and other pieces of the investigation into the shooting death of Mr. of Mr. Swen, Swen Butamea, seemed to make the next steps clear. The sheriff's office arrested George Allen Kelly, the, the rancher suspected of firing the fatal shot and charged him with murder. Then the angry calls started pouring in. This is garbage. It's a travesty of justice. Since when do illegals have rights? To conservative ranchers and far-flung immigration critics who seized on the case as it ricocheted across social media, Mr. Kelly, 74, was the real victim in a murky tale of death, of death and justice in Arizona's politically volatile borderlands. The shooting, January 30th, aggravated tensions over the surge in, in, cor- in cross-border migration. Many in Santa Cruz County are horrified by the killing and view the growing number of migrants as a humanitarian crisis. Mr. Swen Butamea, 48, an undocumented Mexican man, was unarmed and was crossing the border into the United States in search of work, law enforcement officials said. But Mr. Kelly's supporters and some fellow ranchers see the incident as evidence of an invasion of migrants and drugs along the 2,000-mile border that threatens their security. Mr. Swen Butamea's death 
has added to a bloody toll of widely publicized killings along the border and a sense of the peril on both sides. In September, two American men were accused of opening fire on a group of migrants who had stopped for water at a pond outside El Paso, Texas. In March, two Americans were fatally shot during a brazen kidnapping in Matamoros, Mexico, that highlighted the rampant violence on the Mexican side of the border. Law enforcement officials say the shooting on Mr. Kelly's ranch occurred after a group of undocumented migrants traversing the high desert nearby spotted a border patrol vehicle and scattered. When two men ran, on, ran onto Mr. Kelly's 170-acre ranch, the authorities say, Mr. Kelly fired his AK-47 rifle at them, hitting Mr. Swen Butamea in the back. In court papers, Mr. Kelly's lawyer offered a sharply different account saying that Mr. Kelly and his wife were eating lunch when they heard a gunshot. Mr. Kelly went to his porch to investigate, the court papers say, and in the distance he spotted a group of camouflage-clad men with assault rifles crossing his property. He fired warning shots over their heads after one of the men pointed a rifle at him, his lawyer said in in-court documents. Mr. Kelly and his lawyer, Brenna Larkin, declined to comment for this article. Mr. Kelly pleaded not guilty in March to charges of second-degree murder and assault and has been released on a $1 million bond. A trial has been scheduled for September 6th. Ms. Larkin has disputed whether Mr. Kelly fired the fatal shot. In a court hearing, she appeared to raise the possibility that Mr. Swen Butamea might have been killed in a conflict between rival gangs. The question of security for ranchers living along the border is a complex one. Most migrants are looking for work or seeking to escape dangerous conditions, yet that flow of families and young migrants is often managed by networks of smugglers controlled by organized crime groups, including some of Mexico's most violent cartels. Ranchers in remote areas say they feel especially vulnerable because they are isolated. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Some ranchers have responded to rising numbers of undocumented migrants by setting out water for them in the desert. Others use game cameras to track groups th threading their way up ravines and arroyos. Some ranchers say they bring rifles for self-defense against traffickers when checking on their, st their stock. The border is out of control, said John Ladd, a rancher outside Naco, Arizona who said he had found 16 migrants' bodies on his land and had seen people with 30-foot ladders scaling sections of border wall by his ranch. Everybody's just sick of it. When you think your life's threatened and your wife, everybody has a certain point where enough is enough. After Mr. Kelly was arrested, scores of people from Virginia to Florida to California rallied to his defense and raised $425,000. The history and economy of Santa Cruz County, whose population is 80% Hispanic, are rooted in the ties of Ambos Nogales, the twin cities that straddle the border wall. Every day, thousands of people from Nogales, Mexico, cross legally, in, cross legally into Nogales, Arizona, trucking in, trucking in tomatoes and electronics or walking in to shop and visit relatives. Although overall crime rates in Nogales, Arizona are, high, are higher than statewide averages, Violent crime is lower, and crime is scant in the outlying rural areas of Santa Cruz County, including the Keno Springs area, where Mr. Kelly's ranch sits, according to state data. The whole 50,000-person county often records one or two homicides a year. It's a very peaceful and tranquil area, said Sheriff David Hathaway, an elected Democrat. He said he and his wife will take sunset walks not far from where the shooting happened. But in a court hearing, other law enforcement agents described the area around Mr. Kelly's ranch as a high-crime area where drug smuggling was, is on the rise. Outside Nogales, the land on the United States side of the border quickly turns rugged and remote, studded with ranches and wide-open public lands. Miles of new border wall abruptly end when they reach riverbeds and canyons, which serve as crossing points for migrants and smugglers. At least 894 migrants died along the entire southern border in the last federal fiscal year, a 58% increase from the previous fiscal year, according to the U.S. Border Patrol Missing Migrant Program. To Mr. Kelly, the mesquite-fringed stretch of land where the shooting occurred represented a late-life dream when he and his wife bought the property in 2002. 
The Kellys planned to build a resort where wealthy tourists might pay as much as $1,000 a night to go horseback riding, hike, or stargaze, according to court records, but the resort never materialized. Mr. Mr. Kelly called the Santa Cruz Sheriff's Office several times in the early 2000s to report gunshots on his property, a break-in, and tampering with his gates. In 2005, he reported seeing a group of undocumented migrants on his land and said that when two of the men approached him after he yelled at them to stop, he used his pistol to fire a warning shot into the air, according to a report from a sheriff's officer. Mr. Kelly also made regular calls to the Border Patrol's rancher liaison officers, according to court testimony. Mr. Kelly was a stranger to many commercial ranchers in the area. Some called him a hobby rancher, in contrast to larger operations that graze hundreds of cattle. All the ranchers I've talked with have never known him, said Jim Chilton, a rancher and border wall proponent in Arivaca, Arizona. Mr. Chilton said that he regularly sees clusters of backpack-carrying people crossing his land, but he said they tend to avoid his house. I've never fired a shot, but I'm armed at all times, he, he said, adding that he had sympathy for Mr. Kelly. I can understand his frustrations with people coming through his place. In a self-published 2013 novel, Far Beyond the Border Fence, Mr. Kelly conjured, Mr. Kelly conjured the persona of a border rancher named George, who patrols his war zone ranch. George gets into gunfights with traffickers and heads into Mexico to rescue abducted family members. Mr. Swen Butamea, 48, grew up in an adobe house in the impoverished farming village of Buyasacobi in the Mexican state of Sonora, according to his relatives and friends there. He had crossed into the United States illegally, had been deported at least three times between 2011 and 2016, according to court records. Jesus Molina, a friend, said that Mr. Swen Butamea lived with his two oldest daughters in Nogales, Mexico. He occasionally returned to Buyasacobi, about 350 miles south of the border, where his mother and other relatives lived. In Buyasacobi, he worked in the onion fields and would hang out with friends at a local tire repair shop, Mr. Molina said. In court filings, Mr. Kelly's lawyer claimed that Mr. Swen Butamea must have been a smuggler, whether whether of people or drugs or both, because investigators had found a two-way radio with his body, some 100 yards from Mr. Kelly's house. Officials of the sheriff's office in Santa Cruz County said they believed Mr. Swen Butamea had been heading to Phoenix to seek work as a roofer and that they had not found any evidence that he had been a trafficker. Court records say that a witness told investigators that he and Mr. Swen Butamea were making their way through the area when a man with a rifle opened fire without a word of warning. <clears throat> Mr. Kelly called the Border Patrol to say he was being shot at and was returning fire and pursuing a group of men, according to testimony from law enforcement officers. Responding officers searched the area but did not find anyone. Toward evening, Mr. Kelly told the sheriff's dispatcher that he had found, a, found Mr. Swinbutamea's body in a, in a recording of the 911 call obtained through a public records request. Mr. Kelly says he is hesitant to talk on the phone and tells the dispatcher he discovered an animal lying face down. An animal, the dispatcher says. An animal, Mr. Kelly replies, and you know what an animal is. It's not a vegetable or a mineral. It's a body, and you know what I'm talking about. In legal filings, Mr. Kelly's lawyer has called witness statements highly suspicious and has said that they are contradictory and do not match the physical evidence. Supporters of Mr. Kelly, who have spoken to his family, say that he and his wife have left the ranch house in Keno Springs because they are worried about their safety. The dirt road leading to the property is blocked by a locked gate and a sign that says no trespassing. This next article is called How the U.S family, and Hollywood freed, freed the Hotel Rwanda hero. Paul, Rus Paul Rusesa Begina, depicted in the 2004 film about genocide in his country, was reunited with his family last week. It took years of pressure to get him out of Rwanda, where he, he was convicted on terrorism charges. Rwanda's leader was in combative form last December when, on a visit to Washington, he was asked about his country's most famous political prisoner and his personal foe. 
No amount of U.S. pressure could bully Rwanda, President Paul Kagame said, into releasing Paul Rusabagina, the hotelier whose hero, heroism during the 1994 genocide inspired the movie Hotel Rwanda. Maybe make an invasion and overrun the country. You can do that, he added tartly, at an event during the Biden administration's U.S.-Africa summit for leaders from around the continent. Nevertheless, early the next morning, one of Mr. Kagame's top aides met quietly with President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, to discuss the terms of a potential release. It was a key step in a complex, secretive effort to free Mr. Rusesabagina, which culminated on Wednesday in his return to the United States, where he was reunited with his tearful family at a U.S. Army base in Texas. All of us crumbled when we saw him, his daughter, Anais Kanimba, 31, said in an inter interview. The freeing of Mr. Rusesabagina, a 68-year-old dissident and permanent U.S. resident, was not only a triumph for quiet, patient diplomacy, it resolved the growing burden in Washington's relationship with a small yet important African ally that punches above its weight on the continent and is accused of stoking a conflict in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo that could explode into a regional war. Mr. Rusesabagina's plight also presented a delicate challenge for the United States as it seeks to reset its relations with African countries to counter surging Chinese and Russian influence on the continent. That has meant shoring up ties with leaders like Mr. Kagame, a prickly authoritarian whose achievements in rebuilding Rwanda after the genocide have been overshadowed by a repressive rule that brooks no dissent, a trend that Mr. Rusesabagina's case has come to symbolize. Josh Geltzer, the Deputy Homeland Security Advisor to Mr. Biden, described the months-long talks over Mr. Rusesabagina as an effort to overcome a real bilateral irritant and an unacceptable state of affairs. Still, some American officials were not always convinced they should rescue the Rwandan prisoner. Mr. Rusesabagina was lionized globally after the 2004 release of Hotel Rwanda, which depicted him as savior of more than 1,200 people at the luxury hotel he managed during the genocide. But in Rwanda, Mr. Rusesabagina's vocal criticism of Mr. Kagame led him into exile in Belgium, then the United States. He vanished in August 2020, days after leaving his Texas home on what he thought was a trip to Burundi. Rwandan agents tricked him into boarding a private jet that flew him to the Rwandan capital, Kigali, where he was de detained, charged with terrorism, and, after what legal experts called a deeply flawed trial, sentenced to 25 years' imprisonment. His family campaigned vigorously for his release with the help of celebrities like Don Cheadle, the actor who portrayed Mr. Rusesabagina in Hotel Rwanda, and Scarlett Johansson. But the State Department was slow to embrace his cause, partly because his status as a non-American citizen and also because of the murky nature of Rwandan accusations that he had financed an armed group that had killed civilians, a U.S. official said on the condition of anonymity to discuss internal deliberations. Still, powerful U.S. senators took up Mr. Rusesabagina's case on both sides of the aisle, including Patrick Leahy, Leahy, including Patrick Leahy Democrat of Vermont, and Jim Risch, Republican of Idaho, and the ranking member on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, writing letters and at one point withholding $90 million in aid to Rwanda. The senators pressed the government to help. They got results in May 2022, six weeks after the court appeal process ended, when the State Department formally declared Mr. Recessa as unlawfully detained, a status that shot his case up the administration's list of priorities, but the effort immediately ran into difficulties. That same day, General Stephen J. Townsend, the commander of U.S. forces in Africa, flew into Kigali, where he was pictured alongside a smiling Mr. Kagame. Mr. Rusesabagina's supporters were infuriated to learn that General Townsend hadn't even raised the case with the Rwandan president, a sign, some senators said, of conflicting American priorities in Rwanda. Mr. Rusesabagina's family turned up the heat on Rwanda by filing a $400 million lawsuit in a U.S. court that named Mr. Kagame, the Rwandan leader, was also coming under Western, that named Mr. Kagame, the Rwandan leader was also coming under Western scrutiny for his country's ties to M23, 
a rebel group in eastern Congo that was pitching the region into chaos. He denied any links, but relations with the United States were growing strained, a crisis that formed the backdrop of a visit to Rwanda by Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken in August. Mr. Blinken pressed Mr. Kagame about Mr. Recessa Begina, an unmistakable signal that the case had become an American priority. Four days later, John Tomasuski, an aide to Mr. Rich, visited Recessa Begina in prison. He showed Mr. Recessa Begina the proposed text of a letter from the prisoner requesting a pardon for Mr. Kagame. Mr. Recessa Begina said he was willing to give it a shot. Paul's family had doubted he would go ahead with the letter. Mr. Tomasuski said, but Paul was being pragmatic. Things began to move quickly. State Department officials worked quietly with Mr. Recessa Begina's family to include language in the letter that would placate Mr. Kagame, as well as a suggestion that, if if released, Mr. Recessa Begina would cease his vociferous criticism of Rwanda's government vociferous. Family members said they disliked those concessions, but went along with them. In November, the White House, led by Mr. Sullivan, took over the secret negotiations. The Rwandan side was led by Mauro De De Lorenzo, an American-born, one-time Africa researcher at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, who had taken Rwandan citizenship and become a staunch defender of Mr. Kagame's policy. It was Mr. De Lorenzo who arrived at 8 a.m. at Mr. Sullivan's office the day after Mr. Kagame's bellicose outburst in Mr. Sullivan's first face-to-face talks over the possibility of freeing Mr. Recessa Bogina. After that, the discussion shifted to how a release might happen. American American officials said, while the Rwandans did not demand money or a prisoner exchange, they wanted the family to drop the lawsuit. They insisted on retaining Mr. Recessa Begina's criminal conviction, and they wanted the United States to issue a statement opposing political violence, the kind of violence that Rwanda had accused Mr. Recessa Begina of leading. The United States agreed to those demands, leading to Mr. Kagame's first public hint at a possible release in Mar- on March 13th. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Still, the Rwandans were highly sensitive about the optics of releasing a prisoner they had long insisted was a terrorist mastermind. Mr. Kagame didn't want to be seen as caving to American pressure. So he turned to Qatar, an investor in Rwanda that has often used its vast gas wealth to help resolve international crises. When Mr. Recessa Bagina was released from prison on the night of March 24th, American diplomats drove him straight to the home of Qatar's ambassador to Rwanda where he spent three nights. When Mr. Recessa Begina flew out of Kigali on March 27th, it was aboard a Qatar government jet. U.S. officials flew with Mr. Recessa Begina to the Qatari capital, Doha, where he was welcomed by his American lawyer, Ryan Fahey. The two men checked into the luxury St. Regis Hotel, where the former prisoner enjoyed his first glass of wine in several years. On Wednesday, they arrived in Houston, where Mr. Recessa Begina was transferred to a military medical facility near his home in San Antonio that specializes in treating survivors of trauma. The basketball star Brittany Griner was treated at the same facility after her release from Russia in December. Two days later, Mr. Recessa Begina was back home, surrounded by his wife, six children, and supporters who had campaigned for his release. They popped champagne, shared a barbecue, and sang God Bless America. That same day, his lawyers formally dropped the lawsuit against Mr. Kagame, but Rwanda still faces several lawsuits in Africa, Europe, and the United States related to Mr. Recessa Begina's arrest, Kate Gibson, his lead attorney, said. Another issue is also outstanding. Whether Mr. Recessa Begina, now safe on American soil and arguably more famous than ever, will stick to his commitment of cutting back on criticism of his old enemy, Mr. Kagame, This next article is called, New Weapons Aren't Enough, The Challenges of Ukraine's Coming Assault. With powerful Western weapons, newly formed assault units, and even a reconstituted Azov battalion, 
Ukraine is poised for a critical spring counteroffensive, but overcoming casualties and keeping war-weary troops motivated will be stern tests. In vicious but mostly static fighting in snowy, artillery-cratered fields and ruined cities, Ukraine rebuffed a Russian offensive over the winter. Now it is Ukraine's turn to go on the attack. Signs are everywhere that, that it is coming in the next month or so. New Western weapons that could prove critical in assaults, like German Leopard 2 tanks and American mine-clearing vehicles, are arriving in Ukraine. Thousands of recruits are training in newly constituted units tailored for offenses, offensives, and the military command is holding back elite soldiers from the worst of the fighting in the east, in and around the city of Bakhmut, to throw them against, to throw them instead into the coming campaign. After more than a year of war, Ukraine is battle-hardened. We are covered in three centimeters of stone, one fighter, Lieutenant Ilya Samoylenko, Samoylenko said in a recent interview. But that toughness has come at a steep cost. Ukraine has lost thousands of its most experienced fighters. Now Lieutenant Samoylenko, a veteran commander and supervisor of the siege of the city of Mariupol, is using his experience to train new recruits. The new Ukrainian campaign, when it comes, will be a test of its army's ability to rearm and reconstitute battalions while maintaining the motivation and maneuvering skills that gave it an edge in three previous counteroffensives. The timing is critical. Success for Ukraine in the battles on the southeastern plains would drive home to the world the declining military might of Russia, ease concerns that the war has settled into a quagmire, and most likely encourage Ukraine's allies to further arm and finance Kiev in the war. Western support has been solid so far, but is not guaranteed. The U.S. budget for military assistance, for example, is now expected to run out by around September, and a senior American defense official recently described the latest tranche of artillery rounds and rockets sent to a Ukraine as sent to Ukraine as a last-ditch effort. The key point in the eyes of Washington elites, and Washington elites are the judge and jury on this, is that Ukraine has to be seen as having gained significant land in the coming offensive. Cliff Kupchin, a ch chairman of the Eurasia Group, a political risk assessment firm in Washington, said in an interview, the challenges are daunting. Ukrainian officers will have to choreograph artillery, infantry, and armored vehicle assaults that crash through Russian trenches, tank traps, and minefields. In the south, Russian units have been building defensive positions since they were pushed out of the Kherson region in November. Sophisticated western tanks with better survivability and firepower will be critical in uprooting those positions. Ukraine had a standing army of about 260,000 soldiers before Russia invaded last year, and it quickly swelled to about a million people bearing arms in various branches of the security services and military. Over the past year, about 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed or wounded, according to Western estimates. Ukraine has not revealed how large a force it will commit to the counteroffensive. Ukraine is seen as planning to drive a wedge through Russian-occupied territory along the southern coasts of the Black and Azov Seas near Crimea, or to seek a humiliating turnabout in the fighting in the eastern Donbass region, or both. If weapons and trained troops fall into place in time, Ukraine is capable of inflicting losses on the Russian army that, get, that could have far-reaching geopolitical consequences. Evelyn Farkas, the director of the McCain Institute, said in a telephone interview. She posited a once unthinkable outcome, that Ukraine could render Russia a weakened military power in Eastern Europe with little leverage in negotiations to end the war. People lack imagination, Ms. Farkas said. They only envision what they see now. But much could change, she said, with the influx to the front lines of the new Western weaponry and the tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers who have been training for the operation at home and in Europe. Still, success is hardly assured. Allies have dragged their feet in sending weaponry, and soldiers, and soldiers have had to make do with crash courses in assault tactics. It's a lot to learn in a short time, said Rob Lee, a military analyst at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and he noted, they will have to go they will have to go before they will have to go before they get all the equipment the weaponry and equipment for breaching trench lines and crossing minefields is falling into place though it remains unclear if it if in sufficient quantity 
The Ukrainian military has posted photographs on Twitter of striker and cougar armored personal personnel carriers from the United States, martyr armored vehicles from Germany, and Challenger tanks from Britain. Last week, Ukrainian crews for Patriot Air, Patriot Air Defense missiles wrapped up training in the United States, the Pentagon said. The counteroffensive, at least in its opening stages, could, could well hinge on crossing sprawling minefields, military analysts say. To do so, Ukraine will be relying on the unglamorous but crucial mine-clearing machines it, it has in its Soviet-era arsenal. It has captured... It has captured some from retreating Russians and is now also receiving mine-clearing devices from the West. The Russian military has a vast arsenal of anti-tank and anti-personnel mines with colorful nicknames, like the Black Widow and the Leaf, some specifically designed to complicate demining with booby traps. The, de the demining can be done manually, with specially trained soldiers probing the soil and keeping a close eye for tripwires as they walk in front of assault units or with specialized mine-clearing machinery. These vehicles fire a rocket that tows a long line of explosives, draping the line over a minefield, then detonating it, clears a path for soldiers or armored vehicles. If the engineers do not say, it's done, the route is clear, the infantry will not attack, said Mar Markian, the, a lieutenant who commands a Ukrainian mine-clearing unit. He has to be identified only by his first name and rank. Preparing for the counteroffensive has come at a cost. Russia has used convicts and mercenaries to wear down the enemy in the months-long fight at Bakhmut, stretch stretching U Ukraine's exhausted, battered soldiers to the limit. Ukraine has tried to avoid taking the bait, deploying volunteer territorial defense units and delaying rotations. The village of Oleksandro Shultin Alexandro Shultin, on one of the flanks in the battle for Bakhmut, for example, is defended now by the Ukrainian Volunteer Army, a unit that blends civilian volunteers with enlisted soldiers. The village is a tableau of ruins, mud, and snow. For months, seemingly endless waves of Russian soldiers waged assaults, and the local commander, who goes by the nickname Sokil, or Falcon, conceded that his soldiers had been killed and forced to give ground in the, in the months while Ukraine was fighting defensively. But he hardly seemed disheartened. They concentrated their forces here, he said of the Russian army. What does that mean? That we will attack somewhere else, and we have every possibility to do that now. In the counteroffensive, Ukraine is likely to launch intensive artillery, artillery bombardments along a narrow <laughs> stretch of front line, military analysts say followed by demining teams and tank assaults. Ukraine is widely expected to strike in the south, where the terrain ranges from wide-open farm fields with only sparse tree lines for cover to towns and villages. A thrust of about 50 miles over the steppe from the current front lines to the Russian-occupied city of Militopol would split Russian-held territory into two zones, sever supply lines, and put Ukrainian artillery within range of Russian bases on the Crimean Peninsula. Preparing new recruits to replace dead, wounded, and exhausted soldiers has been taking place for months. Tens of thousands of new recruits have undergone training in Europe and inside Ukraine, including in newly formed offensive guard units. About 35,000 Ukrainians have signed up for the assault units. But morale, an area in which Ukrainian fighters held an edge for much of the war, is becoming more of a challenge. In a dozen or so recent interviews, soldiers at positions near Bakhmut or emerging from the crucible of street fighting for short breaks expressed dismay at the scale of violence and death. It's never a calm sea, Masik, a sergeant who was manning a position south of Bakhmut, said of his state of mind. It goes up and down. I want to see my family, my kids. In one of the most striking examples of military rebuilding, the Interior Ministry is reconstituting the decimated Azov unit, all of whose active duty soldiers were killed. All of whose active duty soldiers were killed, wounded, or captured in the siege of Mariupol and the holdout at the Az Azovstal steelworks last spring. Others died in an explosion at a Russian prisoner of war barracks in Olen Olenivka. Olenivka. One recent day, at a base in a pine forest, new Azov recruits marched, stood at attention, and dropped for push-ups. They were learning basic soldiering skills in five weeks.
We will train new people to raise them up to our level, said Lieutenant Semoylenko, who was freed from Russian captivity in a prisoner exchange. To ensure that only the most motivated soldiers wind up in its assault unit, recruits are given a choice. At the end of the training course, they can choose to remain at the base rather than deploy to combat. To do so, they ring a bell indicating they prefer to stay. We know how Russia fights, and we know how to counter it, Lieutenant Samuelenko said. Resilience is the ability to find new people, to move forward. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the April 4th, 2023 issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Peter Shea. Thank you for listening.